Hi everyone, it's Chris Lasarenko from Revolutions Per Movie. The show is a completely independent affair, so if you feel like supporting the show, the best way is to go over to patreon.com slash revolutionspermovie, where in exchange for your support, you can get weekly bonus Revolution Per Movie episodes, stickers, membership cards, upcoming guests include Anne Magnuson of Bong Water, Bob Burt of Sonic Youth and Pussy Galore, Jerry Casali of Devo, and Homer Flynn of the Cryptid Corporation representing the band The Residents. So please consider supporting the show over at patreon.com slash revolutionspermovie. And thank you everyone for listening. Enjoy the show. My guest this week is Vanessa Briscoe Hay. Vanessa's first wave band Pylon helped solidify the Athens music scene and influenced the 80s and 90s American pop underground. All music wrote that Pylon's role as elder statesman of the alternative rock explosion is unassailable. Pylon, formed in 1979, broke up several times and formally ended with the death of guitarist Randy Booley in 2009. Along with R.E.M. and the B-52s, Pylon is part of what is considered the big three of Athens music and were among the first artists to be enshrined on the Athens Music Walk of Fame. Since 2014, Vanessa has been making music in Pylon Reenactment Society with friends from her former Athens, Georgia recording project Supercluster. PRS aren't just a tribute band. They've written new songs with Pylon as their guiding star. Their debut album, Magnet Factory, releases February 9th, 2024 on Strolling Bones Records. And the band features Vanessa Briscoe Hay, guitarist Jason Neesmith, bassist Kay Stanton, and drummer Gregory Sanders. And it is my great pleasure to welcome the Revolutions Per Movie, Vanessa Briscoe Hay. Hi, Vanessa. Hi, Chris. Thanks for having me. Oh, thanks for coming on. I'm so excited you picked classic film Athens, Georgia, Inside Out. I have so much to ask you about it. But before we get into it, I want to ask you about you. You grew up outside of Athens or where did you grow up? I grew up between Athens and Atlanta in a very tiny at the time town called Decula, D-A-C-U-L-A. It's like Dracula without the R. You know, I was in the high school marching band uh, and the chorus and the debate team and one act play and all that. It was a very small school. Um, and then when I was 17, I went to the University of Georgia. It was the only school I'd ever applied to go to um, to study art. And uh, I've lived here ever since 1973. I want to ask you about the growth of the town, too, but I, I know that you you went to school for art. Where were you at with music? Oh, I've always loved music and been a, a fan, I, but I never had any intentions on uh, having a career in music. I mean, I originally entered the art program to become an art teacher, Okay, but then I became enamored of the drawing and painting program there, and uh, I had a lot more in common with those kids than I did with the college education kids. And um, that's what I ended up studying. Um, but as far as music goes, I've always been a fan. And I was uh, happened to be in Athens when, um, you know, the B-52s first took off and uh, the beginnings of what's considered the, you know, the modern music scene in Athens, uh, we had a great student station, WOG, um, that would play um, things, um, <clears throat> little carts and things by the uh, 
new bands that were coming up and on uh, the singles, you know, when they happened. And we also had a record store called Chapter Three Records, which was right across from, you know, the campus of UGA. Um, and we also had a, a really thriving party scene because at the time there really weren't any clubs uh, for new music to play. There were mostly clubs where you would have a band come in and play the entire week and they would do covers, you know, right. like the swinging medallions would come in and it was like a real frat, you know, music scene and those places like the BNL warehouse. So, but uh, then UGA, they would get national acts when they came through, you know, like hard and, Oh, I don't know. Oh, Elton John and right. You know, people like that. And so, uh, you know, between that and Atlanta being um, fairly close to drive to, um, uh, there was no shortage of bands to go and see and things to do. Were you going to see underground music in Atlanta before you came up to Athens, or was that kind of a new scene to you once you started college? That was a newer scene to me. I mean, I remember when I first saw the first uh, Ramones and Blondie and Talking Heads albums at Chapter 3. And at that point in time, it was possible to own all of the new music that was coming out, um, you know, like uh, Elvis Costello, for instance. And, um, you know, there's so many many bands, you know, of course, like Para Ubu, you know, and whatnot. We did have uh, some underground bands in Athens, uh, Atlanta area. <clears throat> like there was one called The Fans. Oh, Peter loved The Fans. He wanted to put mm-hmm. out a record by them, but I guess the members couldn't get along. <laughs> so, but at that time, that was one of his favorite uh, bands from the region for sure. Oh, yeah, they were great. You know, like anything else, a, a lot of really great bands were undermined by their own pers- personal problems. And sure. I'm not exactly sure what they were, but I know that one of the members right before they were going to play some big show in New York or whatever, just decided to disappear for a week, you know, that type of thing. Yeah. No, it's kind of classic. <laughs> you know, those stories are uh, universal, uh, no matter what music scene you're part of. From the outside, it looked like Athens was a massive scene, but it was small, correct? Like when I visited Athens, still to this day, I still see the frat and Greek culture uh, on the campus. You know, you're loading in at the 40 watt and across the way, there's this big, you know, frat house and they're having keggers outside and cranking tunes. And it's just such a weird thing to be like, oh yeah, John Cameron Mitchell's going to be playing here in a bit, but... Meanwhile, we've got like Hair of the Dog by Nazareth being played just feet, beats away. So what what was the, the dynamic of that scene like? Well, you know, that's true. There was uh, there were several things going on at once, like they would be in, you know, many college scenes. The, uh, you know, what we consider the modern music scene that started with bands like the Fans and um, the B-52s and... Uh, you know, whatnot, um, that grew. At the same time, there was also this real thriving frat scene, and they didn't exactly like 
these kids you know as a matter of fact some of them um um, i heard a story there were a group of them and i think michael stipe was in that group uh that got jumped by a bunch of frat guys and beaten up wow and then of course a year later they'd be blasting rem out of their house or whatever a lot of the interviews we've had on here people really you know there was a different era where you definitely got picked on for just liking music that was different and threatening to someone. It was kind of amazing. And dressing a little bit different. It was a core group of maybe 50 to 75 individuals that would be guaranteed to show up for everything. Um, They were centered in the UGA art school and also in a a local eatery that was a vegetarian uh, restaurant called the El Dorado. Okay. And um, you could, put most of the members of most of those early bands is coming from one or the other of those two places or at least having one member from one of those two places as a matter of fact i drew a big diagram for that for a guy who was doing his thesis back in the 80s and um, they ended up blowing that up and making a poster out of it if i'd known they were going to use it for that i wouldn't have been some messy right. writing it all out but you know um but it, it you know you have a to make a scene you know really happen you have to have a, a tipping point and we had that tipping point we had uh, the right number of people who were super involved and vested in making that same fun and, you know, coming out and going to the parties and, you know, going to see the B-52s and whatever. Then when they left town, there was kind of a void in the party scene. And right. uh, that's kind of where Palon stepped in, you know. Um, right. Because it seemed like so many of the bands in Athens, the goal was to get people to dance. You know, not just to stand there and like nod their head. It did seem like a party atmosphere. Yeah, yeah. You know, the, you know, um, participate. You know, when you dance, you release all these endorphins and things, and there's so much joy and you know, um, fun and all of it. I just have very fond memories of that scene. You know, dancing two, three, four hours, whatever. Right. So, were you? You were asked to audition for Pylon, right? Yeah, that's correct. So you knew the people who you were going to make music with. Were you friendly with them or would you just know them from a distance? I had a, I, I kind of had an inkling, you know, I was friends with Michael and Randy from art school and, uh, you know, I'd gone to see the bees, I guess it was October 1978 and you know i was sitting up front with my friend Rhonda, and uh randy came up and he said did you hear it and i was like oh what he said oh that's the tape for my new band and uh i was like oh really oh that was great i don't but i don't remember hearing it i was just being nice to him uh-huh. and so you know later on um he asked me to audition it was uh uh, February the 14th, 1979, you know, he came into where I was working and asked me to come audition. And I was like, well, I, I'm just kind of hanging out here waiting for my first husband to graduate from college. I don't have anything better to do. Uh, so I did go and audition. Was that 
scary or was that exhilarating or did you think it, that you did good or what, what was your, what were you feeling? Well, um, you know, I came in, you know, I knew Michael and Randy and I pretty well because I'd had some art classes with him. Um, Curtis, I didn't really know so well, but I'd seen him and I came in and they had a, a notebook set up and a microphone and uh, had written like five or six songs and they'd play a song and then I would try to get the words to fit. You know, Michael had written a lot of the words and okay. um, I think at the time he wasn't really thinking about um, rhythm or how they would fit into the music. So right. I was having to try really hard to make some of them fit into what they were doing. Like I might extend a word out or, you know, chop it up or squeeze it all together or whatever. Uh-huh. And so, you know, they finished, finished up and they went, well, thank you. We'll let you know. And so I was just like, well, I wonder what this is. And so the next day, Randy called me up and said, you're in. Um, and he explained the premise was that we were going to go to New York, get written up in New York rocker and then disband. And oh wow! I thought, well, you know, that's not going to take up too much of my life. Okay. <laughs> I'm going to do this. Why? What was the goal of that? Was that just because there was just not, nowhere to go with it? Or was it a, like, a, a? did they think it was humorous to do that? Or Well, there was probably some humor involved in that. But also, you know, it was like, um, well, we came from an art school where we were used to presenting a project. And then right. it was over with. Right. So sure. It's kind of the same thing. It was an art project. You know, yeah. they had a goal. We were going to have a show. And uh, what ended up happening is we weren't written up in New York Rocker for several months or whatever. But we were written up in uh, Interview Magazine. And that was kind of like, you know, Curtis said, I think we had the goal of being in, you know, U.S. News and World Report. And we ended up in Life Magazine. Right. Right. Totally. So were you playing out a lot at this time? Oh, yeah. We we um, toured quite a bit. I think I counted up um, the f- first time we were together. I think we played like over 350 shows. Uh, we went out west three times, which is quite a trip. And yeah, um, New York, um, Northeast Corridor, all the way up to Boston and back. Um, was a well-worn, um, you know, series of dates for us up and down through there. Uh, about every six to eight weeks, we would go play up there. You were writing the lyrics at this point, correct? Yeah, I took over the lyric writing, you know, um, not too long after that. Did you write the lyrics beforehand, before you heard the music and fit it in? Or did you hear the music and then try to uh, create something around what was uh, structured? Well, it kind of happened different every time. Um, uh, I know, well, well, here's one example. We wrote the song, K. Um, Michael and I were like, we need some lyrics. And so we played a Scrabble game and used the um, words to write the lyrics. You know, like oh, that's great. each word we came up with would be used on one of the sentences or couplets of the uh, song. 
um, M Train. Um, <clears throat> that's the only one that Randy plays bass on. And how that happened was is Michael had to go to the bathroom. So Randy walked over and picked up the bass and uh, started playing. And I just started uh, singing those words. And uh, it kind of pretty much wrote itself, you know. Wow. And uh, Crazy, that was almost the same kind of thing. That song pretty much wrote itself. I mean, uh, Randy had just gotten a new um, Supro um, hollow body, which had a really beautiful tone. And uh, he started, you know, messing around and... um, he started playing, you know, those riffs and I was like, you know, just started singing the words. But sometimes I would take a tape home and uh, have to like really work at it. It wasn't always that easy. So it's different. It's different every time. What about a song like Stop It, which is so brief in its language and cryptic and fun and weird like where where like where did that come from for instance that song well michael um wrote those lyrics down and basically it was like don't rock and roll now rock and roll and uh i was like what am i gonna do with this okay i'm gonna approach this real seriously and uh even though it was like kind of funny to all of us right you know? that's amazing i love it i mean did you feel from, you know, the first single to, you know, uh, Chomp that like the language of Pylon shifting in terms of music and where you're going lyrically? Did you feel like a big growth or did you feel like you were always kind of staying in the Pylon sound? Well, the fact that it was those particular four people, it, no matter what we did, it was going to sound like Pylon. Right. And, you know, I mean, uh we could write a ballad and be Pylon or we would write a, a crazy little tune like Precaution and be Pylon too. They were all Pylon. Um, they just, uh, some of it was uh, from uh, Randy's tuning, um, which he used an alternate tuning. Okay. And some of that was maybe from, from uh, the way that Michael, uh, his bass resonance had a sound to it um it was kind of like more of a high-end uh kind of back bass sound and uh lugubrious i guess you would say uh danceable uh but the combination of the bass and the drums uh curtis was really our secret weapon if we hadn't had absolutely a, a good drummer we wouldn't have gone anywhere you know even with all of that it would have just been like it would have been two art school, but he was the one that put that uh, four in the floor kind of beat on it that right. made it danceable, you know? No, I, I heard it for the first time in a record store and it sounded amazing in a record store. You know, you had those experiences where you just turn and you're like, what are you playing? <laughs> you know, and like, can I buy this right now? Can I steal this from your hands? Because, you know, the record clerk wants to take it home, too. And I want to ask you about, uh, you know, the Pylon Reenactment Society as well as we get into the film and to the Pylon section. But it's kind of fascinating because in ni- this film came out 
It was made in 1986, or it came out in 86. It came out, I think, late 86. They filmed my part January the 28th, 1986. I can remember. Okay. Because that's the day the space shuttle blew up. Oh, my God. Wow. Yeah, of course. So it's an interesting film. First-time filmmaker, Tony Gayton, who also did the Dexter Two-Headed Cow film later on. It was so rare to have a film document a scene that we could see. I mean, there just wasn't many films like this. There was maybe like Erga Music War before it. There was like dance craze about the UK ska movement. But to have the focus on an independent music scene, um, and it came out on VHS, you know what I mean? You could find it at, at a rental store or at a Tower Records, you know, if you didn't have much access, it was, you could find it. Um, and the soundtrack as well. It was a complete rarity. But by the time this film came out, the the wave, the early wave was already over with Pylon and B-52s and other things. Did that feel weird that it came out in a, in a, a time where there was like another scene coming that was just being born out of it? Well, um, yeah, I think, think that you're right. It did seem a little odd and that... Uh, um you know, it's like the early scene that there were still bands that were around, you know, like the method actors and love tractor and uh, whatever who'd been there at the beginning, but the B-52s, uh, even though they maintain close ties to Athens, Georgia, because they had family here, right. Um, had moved away. And I think, you know, that was like uh, part of the management decision at the time. Um, but REM were just about to start hitting their stride. Um, so it was very exciting for them. Uh, for me, um, Pylon had been disbanded for several years. We had played our last show for the first Pylon, December the 1st, 1983. Um, and so it was several years later. I was, you know, kind of like when they asked to come film me. Um, I was just kind of like, well, why do they want to do that? You know, but my husband's band, um, yeah. Squalls were in it. Mm-hmm. And so that was fun to see. And then after I was filmed, that's when I became pregnant with my first daughter. So I had uh, my first daughter, um, January 1987. And you know, there were a few years there. It was just like, it seemed like people were not forgetting about Pylon. Um, one reason was this movie. And another one was that uh, R.E.M. had covered um, Pylon's song, Crazy, which ended up on the B-side of Driver 8. That was a big deal for a lot of people. I know a lot of people who discovered Pylon because of that. Yeah, and it was like, so, you know, that... Those two things were some of the things that led into Pylon not being forgotten and us getting back together the second time in 1988. No, it's interesting because I knew people at this stage who were driving out to Athens to just walk around. I know people who went to college in the mid 80s because of the music scene there. It was like 
when I, you know, the B-52s, I had those records, but I never knew where they were from. I never knew they were an Athens band. You know, I always assumed they were New York. Like, I didn't know what Athens, Georgia was until I heard R.E.M., and then it was like I discovered, you know, Love Tractor and Pylon and all these other things. But it's interesting that I knew more about Athens than I knew about Atlanta. I knew more about Athens than I knew about, you know, the Chicago scene at the time. And it seemed totally worthy, but it must have been surprising because it's it, it, it was still such a small scene. It was surprising. And there were people moving here. Um, for their bands um, to become part of the scene. I don't know that they necessarily expected that they were going to become, you know, REM or whatever. But right. um, I think anytime you have a good energy spot, you know, like that, that you are going to have people drawn to it. You know, it happened in the 60s with San Francisco and uh, Los Angeles and in the seventies with New York city and, uh, you know, then up in the Northwest with the grunge scene, you know, right. in the nineties, you know, so you would have people going where the action was. And, uh, at one point they were calling us the San Francisco of the South because we had 350 bands what? based in our little town. That's incredible. Crazy. I know that, is amazing. Yeah, so they, they narrowed down to about a dozen bands. Um, and I think it does a good job of just showing that they're not concentrated on bands that are REM adjacent. You know, not everything sounds like jangly. So, you know, the barbecue killers, you know, I'm just like, oh, whoa, okay, this is different. You know, Time Toy. Okay, that sounds nothing like what I thought would come out of Athens because I just had a really narrow scope. But I, I thought that they did a pretty good job of, of you know, showing just how the scene was diverse. But did you feel like there was anything that you would have loved to have seen documented in it? Well, um, there was, you know, one in particular, I think that uh, OOK were in there. Um, it would have been nice to see them. Uh, there were a whole bunch of bands who would have been good in uh, the movie, but... Uh, you know, for whatever reason, the ones that they chose were the ones that they chose. And, you know, you can't go back and predict the past. Was was Limbo District, they were really short-lived as well, right? Limbo District were in the movie in that they used uh, Jim Herbert, part of his um, video in right. the carnival. And uh, Jeremy Ayers, uh, they tried to film him, you know, who would written uh, lyrics for B-52s and for R.E.M. and also uh, was kind of like very, very important to the scene and, you know, stylistically and um, whatever. Um, But he didn't want to be filmed at all. Uh, He was like real, didn't want want any part of it. But uh, I think they did get him and some friends like, beating on some, you know, percussion instruments out in the yard. Oh, that's Jeremy in that at the, where they're just, okay. I never knew the context of that footage. Yeah. I mean, you could take that and put it in the elephant six documentary and it would just be just timeless. Oh yeah. And, uh, he was one of my neighbors. He was like, uh, um, such a fun person. You know, he had, uh, 
been one of uh, Andy Warhol's uh, people at the factory. He had a persona, Sylvia Thin. He was um, a transvestite, very beautiful. He's actually one of the most beautiful men I've ever seen personally. And uh, just uh, very, very uh, influential um, to so many people, but he wouldn't um, agree to be filmed. And so the fact they have um, the Limbo District um, footage from that music, that's wonderful. You know, the film does a pretty great job of out of the gate you get a sense of the surroundings of Athens, you know, like there's a montage at the top of cows and tractors and people just walking around and making art and just kind of like standing in the street and Walter's barbecue. And, and they show the outside of, you know, some of the venues and things like that. But it was really funny when we, the last time we played in, in Athens, we got this Airbnb and they had this film as one of the things you could, you know, in their house, like we have Athens, you know, Georgia inside out. And so we put it on and Jonathan, who's in the band, but also went to college in Athens was like pointing everything out. He's like, oh, there's Ort. And I'm like, I hadn't seen it in a while. I was like, yeah, who who is Ort? Can you tell me a bit about why he's kind of the, I don't know, he's like the, the thread throughout this film. Oh, yeah, they are. Uh... They used him as a narrator, and uh, it is uh, he was the perfect choice because he had been here so long. He's also, you know, he's a little quirky. He since passed on. This guy had like an encyclopedia for a brain uh, as far as his knowledge of music and of, of course, the Athens music scene, but not just Athens music, but uh, all music. I mean, when he he died, his house was so full of like singles and um, flyers and stuff. The floor had actually collapsed, you know. So uh, that was quite an archaeological dig going on there from his uh, uh, friends and whatnot. He were pitching in on that, but he was perfect um, in that he was well spoken. Yeah. Um, he was interesting, quirky. Uh, he also, um, you know, that Fred Schneider had worked for Ord. I didn't know that. Yeah. Um, Ord had a, a record store called Ord's Aldi's, and uh, Fred worked in there part-time. That's actually the first time I think I ever actually spoke to Fred, and this was before the B-52s, you know, were really a thing um yeah you know fred also worked at the el dorado restaurant as a wait waiter or waitroid as they called it um so you know these people were in, embedded in the community Ward uh, had been here the entire time so he was like the perfect choice to be the narrator um yeah he's great yeah um and he seemed like Again, you're right. He's such a great uh, force to come in and just be like, come this way. Come into this empty room. You know, let's talk. Yeah. It was, it's, it's super charming. Oh, yeah. And, you know, he, he was doing things that, uh, you know, later on kind of became a 90s and 2000s thing and that he uh, 
um, collected and knew about craft beers around the country. Um, he was into barbecue, um, singles, you know, um, traveling and whatnot. And he had a, um, a column in the local paper for the longest time, uh, which was just perfect. So having him in this movie, it, even though, you know, there are some flaws in it, according to some people who live here, I think it's great that these people like Ward and people like John C. Wright, who passed on, um, there is a record of them, you know. Right. Well, what are some of the flaws that people who live in this in the city had with the film? Well, they were like, why did they choose these particular bands? Why did they film right. this? How come uh, there's, uh, you know, like some people were like, well, um, you know, these folk artists don't even live here in Athens. Why are they in this movie? You know, whatever. Right. Um, so, but the, the people who made the movie, uh, I think they made a, you know, it's like a little window that you can see into time. You can't quite see everything, but you can see what they want you to see of this particular time period. And I think it's wonderful, personally. Yeah, it's it's definitely made with total awe and love. And I do think one of the cool things about the film is, and I get it geographically, it may be not making sense, but I like that James Herbert is in there showing his paintings. And I like that, you know, at this point, um, you know, Howard Finster is kind of a, a name. Everyone just kind of knows his work. I mean, I first saw it during that Radio for Europe video, and I just couldn't figure out what I was seeing, you know, his his garden and everything and then walking through it. And then um, who's the reverend that they go visit um, outside of Athens? The He did folk art as well. He and his wife are playing uh, music together. A reverend Reith. Right. I thought it was kind of cool that it wasn't just all music. All right, here's some food stuff. Here's here's some personalities. You know, again, like I didn't know that's Jeremy just playing in the woods with some friends. And, um, you know, the film never overstays its welcome to. It's never like, oh, this is an R.E.M. film and we're just going to really lay it on thick here, you know, because that's the gateway into to this film for a lot of people. It kind of is nice that they do a thing and then they're they're gone for quite a while and then they come back and, you know, Peter's in his pajamas talking and showing us his Elvis collection. But I, I think they, yeah, I, I think it's pretty lovely. And as somebody who was shot for the, the sub pop grunge movie hype, because I was on and got cut from it, <laughs> I could, I'm just like, yep, been there. I've been in films where I'm like, oh, I'm not in it anymore. But it's like, if you have 350 bands like you're talking, I mean, there's just, there's no way to win. No, there's. There's no way to please everybody. So it comes down to the vision of the artist, um, the one who was actually directing it and editing it. And, you know, the like you're right, that B-roll that they shot of um, the surroundings of Athens and downtown Athens, that particular Athens doesn't exist anymore. So it's nice that there is a record of it, you know? Yeah, how do you feel about 
the growth of Athens. I mean, it's it's not necessarily. I mean, it was a very affordable place to live when you were living there um, in the seventies and eighties. And from talking to people, it's it's not necessarily as economically um, easy for art weirdos to do their thing there. Oh no, it's it's not. Uh, that's one thing that's happened is. Uh especially since the pandemic, I've noticed that um, they've had investors come in and um, housing prices, like many places throughout the country, are just through the roof. And so, you know, I mean, at least for here. Uh, so, you know, um, so for a musician to just have like a crummy job, you know, working wherever, uh, they can't survive on that crummy job and make music anymore. They have to have two or three crummy jobs. And it's driving some of them out of the community, you know. But I don't know what we can do about that. It's n- national, you know. And it's hard because part of the excitement when you're young is just living with a bunch of, you know, people you barely know and just figuring it out and having jobs that, you can leave and come back to, you know, and and just not having to uh, be worried about your future. Right. You know? yeah, they, yeah. And uh, it's, it's you're you know, you're exactly right. You know, but there there it seems to be less and less um, possible for a young person to have that period of time where they can be irresponsible and uh yes not not have to worry too hard about if they're going to starve to death you know right i have you seen the film recently i've seen i've seen it within the last 10 years they put out another edition of okay. it that has some uh, uh additional footage um interviews from like uh widespread painting and you know what what not so i saw that and i saw it when it came out you know at the theater I think uh, I had somebody watch my daughter who was a baby and I went over there and the guy taking tickets at the door, he just kind of smirked at me and went, oh, you came to see yourself. Oh, that's horrible. <laughs> oh, that's horrible. But, you know, uh, what? what's a th- theater ticket person supposed to do? I thought you're really honest in the film and it seemed like you're in a place where it just seemed abstract that you had done this thing um and your place in it can you talk a bit about where you were at that point like just post pylon well um i was just working and and maybe making some art and you know hanging out with uh, uh my friends you know i had a job at a um copy shop and uh you know i was kind of enjoying not being on the road and not having to worry about a whole lot of um you know like all that traveling and whatnot it it is it is uh um it's not stressful so much as it's uh, um it's a lot of work you yeah. know to get from point a to point b and we enjoyed it we did it as long as you know we wanted to and then uh, we came back and did it again and broke up and came back and did it again a little bit and so you know with the pylon reenactment society 
how it, what is the language of Pylon in terms of writing new songs and kind of honoring the language that you created in the past? Yeah, we did use uh, Pylon as our guiding star in that uh, um, we, you know, the bass is uh, super important to, to the sound. Um, and of course, the drums and uh, some of the songs, it's just like Pylon, some of the songs come quite easily and are written very quickly and others, you know, I might have to work on them for a couple of months, whatever, until I get them to where, you know, okay, this is, this is where I'm going with this. Okay. Now I get it, you know, to hone it down. Uh, My writing process sometimes is I'm listening and I write a lot of words and then I start paring them down to more universal ideas, try to make them more concise and tight. Um, But I will start out sometimes pretty wordy. I mean, you know, Uh I mean, I'm talking Bob Dylan kind of wordy and um, I'll just start crossing those words out until I come up with what is the focus or the idea of the song. And so, uh, you know, arranging the song, I'm uh, real lucky in that these uh, people who are working with me now, Kay Stanton, Jason e. Smith, and Gregory Sanders, are all on my wavelength, you know, just got like pylon were on my wavelength. We don't have any arguments about, you know, direction or sound or whatever. We just kind of all get it, you know. Right. We let everybody write their part, which is how Pylon did it. Well, since Sheen in the film, you say that you heard, you hear your voice and it just doesn't even feel like you, like you're just like, that sounds like somebody else It's like a little out of body. I know that you did super cluster and other things as well, but when did you kind of start feeling like you wanted to get back into music? Well, um, Pylon had gotten back together in uh, 2004. For, and basically the focus that time was to make our uh, music available again and been out of print for a while. Uh, so, you know, Randy and I worked on putting uh, the tapes together for the first two albums uh, for the DFA uh, to reissue on uh, CD. And I uh, had taken them to Rodney Mills in Atlanta to be mastered. Unfortunately, Randy didn't see um, Trump Moore come out um, because he passed away early in um, 2009. Right. So, you know, um, Supercluster had gotten started kind of during that time period, too, because Pylon really weren't able to play a whole lot because uh, Curtis, he has a career in the TV movie industry, and he'd been called out of town to work on uh, the TV series Lost in Hawaii. He's kind of a plane crash expert. Um, He'd done the plane crash and We Are Marshall. And I guess they saw that for Lost and had him come and do the plane crash stuff in Hawaii. So, um, How does someone become a plane crash expert? Oh, you know, you just kind of make it up as you go, I guess. 
Wow. Yeah. Oh, this is kind of a funny story. The one in Atlanta, um, he, uh, you know, they filmed uh, We Are Marshall in Atlanta. And uh, he was like, uh, had left the job site, to, you know, drive and get something and got a call from uh, the job site that uh, somebody had been injured. And he was like, oh, my God, I hope they were okay. You know, started racing back. And as he's coming in, he sees like a life chopper coming in over him. He's like, oh, my God, this is bad. And um, he got up there and the first responders that came to the accident, they thought it was a real plane crash. (laughs) (laughs) And called in, you know, all of the big guns come and help him, you know, whatever. The guy was like just a minor injury or whatever. But, you know. They, he had a machine that would go and um, chop the trees off at a certain level, you know, like oh, um, wow. the plane would come in and like, yeah. you know, breaking the trees off at the top wow. and, uh, you know, had all the, you know, whatnot, you know, scattered around just right. So he was real good at it. I think he might have done three plane crashes. I forget the third one. Anyway, he was out of town. And so Randy and I wanted to keep playing and uh, um, I had music coming in my head that wasn't, you know, exactly pylon type material. And so that's where Supercluster got us started as it was a recording project. Although we did play out some, we went and opened some dates for the B-52s and the Northeast and whatever. Um, But then, you know, we, kind of like we didn't even have like a final show or anything we just like stopped playing around 2013 2014 jason smith who had been in that band with me uh said hey um i'm putting this uh the music together for this art exhibit called art rocks athens that's going to examine the relationship between music and art in athens between 1975 and 1985 will you come and perform and i said well sure but you got to help me get a band together and so he got his band band basically casper and the cookies to come and bat me up on um some pylon songs and it went really well. And then I was like, well, that was fun. So forgot about it, you know, kind of put it up on the shelf. And a year later, he came back and he said, we're doing it again. Uh, there's another exhibit. Um, this one's photography and film associated with that time period. Would you like to come and do it again? They'll give us more time. And I said, yeah, you know, yeah, let's do it. And uh he had to get another drummer because um, our drummer, Gregory, who's back, um, he'd had to have shoulder surgery. So he got uh, Joe Rowe from uh, the Glands to come in. Um, oh. Excellent drummer. And, that was a uh, great band. Yeah, they were truly, truly great band. Yeah. And so, you know, Dressy Bessie heard about it. They had us come and open some shows. And then, you know, we just continue to have people contact us wanting us to come play so we do and uh, now we've recorded our first album that's so cool like do you have a favorite pylon song to perform oh well uh they're all my favorites 
That's the correct answer. That's what I have written down here. You pass. <laughs> That's great. Hey, I have a question. Is it true or false that a member of Squalls is somewhere in your house at the kitchen doing water? Yeah, and stuff? he's like, uh, he's gone out on the back deck now. But yeah, <laughs> that's my husband, Bob Hay. Right, uh, who's featured in the film. And Squalls, you know, were really interesting in that film. Their interview, especially, they seem like one of the people is like, I'm kind of ready to leave Athens. You know, they're ready to go. And uh, and people were saying, like, oh, no matter how far you go, you'll never be satisfied. And that time in music was really interesting because there were people who were starting to make a career at it. Um, and so the dream was seemed had to seem to have potential. You know, you've had this long life in art and music now. Is it surprising? No, it's not surprising in that uh, I, you know, I. Honestly, I never really planned any of it. So I just kind of take it as it comes and I've enjoyed it. And I think that artists are wired a little differently sure. and that uh, we're going to create whether or not, uh, you know, people necessarily even want to hear us or whatever. We're just going to do it, you know. There was nowhere to go. So you had to do it just because you loved it. And maybe you got to tour a bit or put out a record. But for, you know, for my teenage and early life, I just thought I didn't know bands could self-release records. I just was like, I, that seems like I didn't know people were putting out their own stuff. I looked at the label name and the address and just assumed that they've been picked by the gods to put out this stuff. Um, so that was really eye opening um, when I got older to be like, oh, you made these sleeves and. Or this label that seems really big to me, like DB, is not this massive thing. It's just, you know, one or two people trying to make, to release art. Well, you know, we came in at the beginnings of the DIY movement, uh, movement um, there. So, uh, you know, what you're talking about, that would have been true for many bands and you know say the 60s and 70s there would be a and r people who would right go and court a band and decide this is the one we're going to push or whatever and they would release and if they didn't sell anything it would just sink like an anchor or whatever but uh if it did anything at all then um they would promote it and you know keep working it one way or the other, you know, for some kind of outcome, it was a, a business, um, right? as opposed to like a labor of love or whatever. The, some of these DIY bands uh, were putting out all those seven inch singles, that was amazing. Which, are, which are still my favorite format, you know. Mine too. I love, I yeah. love singles. I would often get obsessed with just one side of it. You know, just because, oh, my God, the song is just incredible. But then you fall in love with the other side and then the other one gets neglected. It's it's such a cool format. And I just love the, you know, that the art tended to be even a little bit more, um, I don't know, tossed off a little bit. Like it just sometimes because I, when I was in Guided by Voices, Bob was putting out all these singles. You know, that's mostly what he was doing. And Matador was rushing to keep up with his output. But some of them were like, wow, this is barely readable. 
And I kind of loved it. Like the seven inch format, everything's really tiny and hard to read because it was handwritten and then shrunk down. Oh yeah. I, I love, I, I'm a nerd too. I love reading all that stuff. <laughs> Getting that magnifying glass out or now what yeah. we do is we take a picture with the iPhone and blow it up, you know, yeah. so we can read it, you know? Oh yeah. And the, and the putting secret messages and the run out grooves was always really fun. I remember just being like, Oh, they're, what a, I don't, this is a joke in joke with a, about a friend they know, but who's chalky. I have no idea, but there, there's a joke on both sides in the run out groove about chalky etched into it. It's incredible. I also really enjoyed, I hadn't seen um, the sequel to this film that had come out uh, a few years ago as Georgia was turning blue. And I really enjoyed uh, your interviews and the performances in it because I, I hadn't got to see uh, the reenactment society yet. And, but it was nice to see like, oh, okay, finally in the film. And uh, Mariah Parker, is that her name? The Mariah Parker, yeah. Yeah, she's she amazing. She's since moved on to Atlanta. Okay. Very, very bright woman. Yeah, we played a show with her. She It was incredible. Um, Cindy Wilson, really fun to see her perform in it. I was kind of surprised. I had not heard that there was a sequel, but it was... I. It was kind of fun to see that. Was that the same filmmakers who made that as well? Well, the um, the director and producer was Bill Cody. He was the producer of Athens, Georgia, Inside Out. Okay. Uh, so he came here probably over the space of um, maybe three years. He would come and take a break from his job in Los Angeles um, where he worked for uh, a city councilman out there. Um, and, uh, you know, I think his, his vision of it kind of evolved. I think he wanted to kind of update what was going on in the scene, but what he discovered is, uh, you know, uh, Athens had, uh, become more political. And, um, uh, so he was able to tell that story, you know, because of the pandemic, I think it really cut down on, um, where it was shown, but you can get it streaming and I think you can still get the DVD, you know? Yeah, I got the DVD. Yeah, it's it's out there. And I'm going to put in the show notes to this episode, I'll put link to your new record and links to uh, both movies so that people can catch up. But the original Athens, Georgia Inside Out was, again, just such a rarity in terms of access to filmic, imagery of bands that I loved and bands I didn't know about, which was really rare. And it looks great. It reminds me a little bit of like a less blank film shot in 16 millimeter using natural light. Um, it's kind of a beautiful film that's aged really well in the way it looks. Yeah. This, uh, because it was shot on film. Right. Yeah. There's something about that. You can really feel the atmosphere. Yeah, you can feel the air, the heat, the humidity, the conversations, and just even, you know, like I said, going to see Ort in like a really dimly lit room, vacant room, versus, you know, Jim Herbert showing his art in his studio versus where they filmed you and the all the archival footage. I, I think it's a pretty incredible film. So I'm I was really excited that you picked it and that I finally get to crack open and get some of these things answered so i appreciate it oh well it's been so um such a pleasure to talk to you and have this conversation um it was 
very, very exciting for me to uh, come and talk to you today. I mean, good luck with your new record coming out in March. Oh, thanks. You too. Yeah, well, you know, I hope when we play Athens, it's still one of my favorite cities to play. It just feels great. People are, the audience is so dedicated. I love it. No one is checked out <laughs> to see you. It's a, I, I just love it still. And it's, and it's also exciting for me as a music fan. I still kind of never get over the fact that I'm playing Athens, Georgia. And a lot of it is because of, you know, your band and, REM and this film is just to me it's like yeah New York okay but like Athens I'm like yes we're playing Athens this is gonna we always end our tours we always end our tours in Athens we just do um and there's a reason for it is we want to go out on a high and that city really um is special um, at the end of every uh episode I ask uh the same question but I tailor it depending on the film on a scale from one to 10, with one being the lowest and 10 being the highest, how many sets of Peter Buck pajamas do you give this film? <laughs> uh, I guess I'll give it um, eight and a half. That's great. So in one of them, he's either tops or bottoms. So we'll let Peter choose. <laughs> I think that uh, you, you can't go wrong with the bottoms. <laughs> Absolutely. No, that was uh, that was so iconic. And that is exactly what I have written down here. 8.5. So uh, again, we've, we've synced up perfectly. So good to see you. And thank you for doing this. It's been great. Thank you. It's my pleasure. Uh, maybe I'll see you sometime on the West Coast. It's a given. Yeah. <laughs> thank you for listening to Revolutions Per Movie. We release new episodes every Thursday, and if you've enjoyed this, it would mean a lot to me if you would rate and review it on your favorite podcast app. The show is a completely independent affair, so the best way to support the show is through our Patreon at patreon.com slash revolutionspermovie, where you can get weekly bonus episodes and exclusive goods sent to you just for joining. You can also follow us on social media at revolutionspermovie and find out more information about our various guests in the episode show notes. Thanks again. And we'll see you next week. Bye.